Today on the Sunshine Economy, hear from the French ambassador to the United States on pandemic international travel, climate change, the Caribbean, and the space race. Florida is a very important place for French investors. Coming up, our conversation with France's ambassador to the U.S., Philippe Etienne, on business between Florida and France. Because, after all, entrepreneur, by the way, is a French word. I'm Tom Hudson. Also on today's program, catching up with the baker, banker, and cleaner in the pandemic economy. We used to pay $10 and $3.11 in the kitchen. We're paying $12. I'm always mindful that even though we hear some of those positive things about the economy, there's still people that are hurting. This is pretty much like pre-COVID. And actually, this is better than pre-COVID. <laughs> it's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week and for supporting public radio. This is what brought Philippe Etienne to Florida last week. T-minus 15 seconds. This was Friday morning before sunrise. The audio is from NASA TV. 10, 9, 8. Countdown to launch of SpaceX Crew-2 from the Kennedy Space Center. 3, 2, 1, 0. Mission. And liftoff. Endeavour and Crew-2. Copy, 1-0-5. Endeavour launches once again. Four astronauts from three countries on Crew-2, now making their way to the one and only International Space Station. Etienne is France's ambassador to the United States, and he came to Florida to see a fellow countryman blast off into space. stage performance so far. Thomas Pesquet and three others were aboard the third SpaceX launch with humans. The launch was delayed one day because of Florida weather, but the crew was able to lift off early Friday morning. Down the nine Merlin engines shortly here in preparation for in preparation for maximum dynamic pressure. We will hear from France's top diplomat to America about the space industry later on in this program. France's and Etienne's interest in Florida go well beyond the space industry. It's just one of the topics we spoke to the ambassador about last week. There's also tourism, climate change, and the Caribbean. Florida is a very important place for French investors. And France is an important source of investment for Florida. French direct investment in Florida was responsible for 31,000 jobs in 2017, the latest data available from Enterprise Florida, the state's economic development agency. That places France fourth on the list of the leading foreign investors here, and almost 10% of jobs in Florida from foreign direct investment are because of France. It means uh, quite a lot of trade, but also a lot of investment, and uh, technology is a very important element. France is among those watching Miami's effort to stand up and stand out in the competition to grow and attract the technology industry. Just as the COVID-19 pandemic spread across the globe in March 2020, Miami was designated a La French Tech community. La French Tech is France's digital startup initiative. It has about a half dozen outposts in the United States. We see uh, South Florida as a very dynamic place to invest and to develop technology. And not only in Boston or in New York or in California, obviously, or in Texas. Obviously, there is something uh, new happening here. 
Beyond the French interest in Miami's tech ecosystem is the more traditional travel industry. France is an important source of tourists. It is the eighth largest source of international visitors to Florida and seventh largest source to Miami. France and Florida have had very different strategies toward tourism during the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, France is a country and Florida is a state, so what each can do regarding foreign visitors is a lot different. But while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has banned businesses from requiring vaccine certifications, France is moving in that direction. This is where we began our conversation on the travel industry with France's ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne, last week on Zoom. Ambassador, the French president recently said that France may create a special pass for American citizens to visit France, which would require them to be vaccinated or test negative for COVID-19. What can you share with us about the work of uh, the French embassy in the United States regarding this potential special pass? Florida, like France, are countries for which Tourism is really important, and both uh, French tourists in Florida do matter, but American tourists in France, you can imagine how it is important. So, of course, as our president said, we, we wish to reestablish those, uh, in the, to ease the, the restrictions in, in the two directions. For this, vac- vaccination is something important, but you have also to work on how you, you, you use vaccinations. So now the work is going on very actively at the level of the European Union. Uh, where, uh, you know, many countries, not only France, but also Greece, Portugal, Spain, and actually most others. So we, for us, tourism is really something important. So the idea is that the European Commission in Brussels will uh, make proposals to have uh, vaccination certificates in place uh, so that uh, the touristic season if, if allowed by the sanitary situation, and especially by the advance in vaccination, of course, um, to, to, to have a, a tourism again uh, as much as possible next summer. I think that two, two informations are really important, at least two informations are really important to provide, as the president said, vaccination, but also PCR tests. So you have to combine informations about uh, the state of your vaccination and uh, your testing. Obviously, the priority is to overcome the, the at least for Europe, this uh, and for France, this new uh, new wave, this third lockdown. But we are working very, very much on this uh, to be able to restart this very important uh, flux of uh, visitors. What has been the reaction amongst your ambassadorial colleagues in the United States that the U.S. has been resistant to requiring? vaccinations for international travel. The subject of vaccine passports, to put a title on it, has been very controversial in the United States. Yeah. Well, I think at the beginning, at least, this uh, idea of uh, vaccination uh, or certificates or passports uh, also in Europe is not easy, but for a reason which might be different from the situation in the United States. I mean, in, in Europe, the... The problem is that at the big, we we lack behind the U.S. in the in the speed of vaccination. So uh, there was the idea we we didn't want to create a two-speed uh, uh, system and to disadvantage those or to discriminate. But now it's a bit different because vaccination is making good progress. So while maybe in the U.S. there is also some uh, some other reasons uh, which uh, make that there is there are those controversies. 
So we'll see. Uh, it's uh, for each country to <laughs> to decide its own uh, uh, to make its own decisions. Of course, uh, also in Europe, we have people in France reluctant to get vaccinated. We have also to see whether vaccination can help us restart uh, tourism. So we we will have to make the best decisions. The controversy is certainly pointed here in Florida, where you are today speaking with us. The governor of Florida issued an executive order prohibiting businesses from having vaccine passports as a requirement for customers. What are your thoughts about those types of prohibitions that we're seeing in the United States and seeing in Florida in a tourist-dependent economy? Well, it's, it's difficult for me to, to make any judgment about uh, what's happening here. Uh, on the European side, I think the, the, the idea would be rather to have uh, uh, as many people vaccinated as possible so that you can use these informations uh, without uh, putting um, some people, some categories of people in, in, a, in a disadvantage. This is more the way it is being seen uh, probably on, on our side. But I will not make any judgment on what's happening here. One part of this that I'm curious about, the role of tourism is so important in Florida, and it's important in areas of France as well. Are you concerned at all about a scenario that we seem to be on the path toward where Floridians who would like to visit France would be required to certify that they've been vaccinated or test negative for COVID-19. And French tourists who would like to visit Florida would not face such requirements. What do you think about that difference? Well, we'll see. You know, uh, Tom, for the time being, the system is uh, already a bit uh, not completely symmetrical. Uh, but there is a, now on both sides still uh, the obligation to provide uh, um, when you get on board a plane, you, you have to show a negative PCR test, valid, uh, which, uh, valid P- negative PCR test uh, less than three days old. So uh, for, for the time being, it's a, it's a situation. So, but it is not completely symmetrical because, for instance, people in principle, uh, in principle, because the restrictions are such that this difference doesn't matter very much now, but European citizens living in the US, if they come to, if they get back to France or to Germany or to, they, they are not necessarily allowed to get back to, to the US, which is a, obviously an issue. We have regimes, we have restrictions on both sides that are not exactly the same. And I think we, we, of course, we must be careful about that. But I think because I'm optimistic by nature that the more our situations will converge in the direction of an improvement, the less those uh, differences of uh, regulations will will matter. But uh, yes, we have to look at that and to be sure that we we give... uh, good uh, possibilities to all our people and in two directions. It is not important only for tourism, by the way. It is also important for business and for culture, for our cooperation, our cultural cooperation, for instance, our teachers in both directions. Uh, we have young Americans going to teach English in France. We have French teachers who need for our, in our schools. We need at least to see that as much as possible, these uh, restrictions do not... Uh, 
do not hamper our cooperation and our business and investment connections. Ambassador, along those lines about business restrictions and uh, tourism specifically, uh, as you are aware, there are no cruise ships that have left from American ports uh, since early March of 2020. The Centers for Disease Control here in the United States has put in a conditional sale order requiring certain protocols to be in place before cruise ships are allowed to take on passengers in South Florida and elsewhere in the United States. Those South Florida cruise ships go out into the Caribbean, and some of those ports of call had been in the French Antilles, for instance, in Martinique and and Guadeloupe. The cruise industry not sailing from those American ports. What can France do to help the cruise ships return to the Caribbean from U.S. ports and to visit those French Antilles ports of call again? Well, I, I am not sure that cruise ships have uh, started uh, to a large extent again to operate either in Europe. We remember what happened last year and uh, in spring last year. It's another um, example of what you what you said before, uh, which is to try to to cooperate um, and to uh, to compare our systems when we restarted. So it's not too early to think of it, of course, since you you speak about our. Uh, own Caribbean departments. And we have in the Caribbean both departments, uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique, but also overseas territories. They are quite fragile territories. So we have specific regulations, sanitary regulations for access to this, depending in each of those territories on the status of the pandemics. Tourism is also for them important. So obviously our interest as soon as possible is to get back uh, tourism there, be it through cruise ships, be it through uh, other forms of tourism. So we we will have to make it all as consistent as possible. Uh, We hope that the which is really the most important, the vaccination will will help us very much. And we, we need not to think of vaccination only in our countries, by the way, but more broadly, because we need to have uh, all possible countries to be vaccinated. It's also really important. What role is France playing with those interests in the Caribbean specifically regarding access to vaccines through the COVAX program? COVAX was a program which was launched one year ago on an initiative by the French president and some other European leaders and some international organizations, the WHO in particular, and international funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is to provide equal access uh, of uh, everybody, of uh, all nations and all people to vaccination as soon as possible. Latin America, Caribbean countries are also uh, or maybe interested by this program. The issue which we try to address with COVAX and the other branches of the same initiative, because we had branches for vaccines, which is COVAX, but also for treatments and for diagnosis and to the fourth one was to buttress the uh, healthcare systems. What we need is uh, is to provide uh, not only money but also uh, to provide uh, the medicines themselves or the vaccines. And we we try now to accelerate in two directions, providing much money as the U.S. has decided to do, as Europe has done, but also to to provide doses. To be, to be quicker. And the second direction we try to, to take is to uh, increase manufacturing uh, across the world. 
because we need more and more to manufacture in different places. That's the French ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne. Now, still to come, our conversation continues. The United States rejoins a landmark climate change agreement hammered out in France, the Paris Accord. I think we can take this seriously and uh, consider that the U.S. is really back on the front line of the battle against climate change together with Europe. Back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN, I'm Tom Hudson. It took the United States more than three years to officially quit the Paris Accord climate change agreement, but one month to rejoin. President Donald Trump made the first announcement in June 2017 from the White House Rose Garden that America would quit the deal to limit global warming. As of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord Because of rules of the agreement, the United States officially filed its divorce papers in the fall of 2019, and the separation wasn't final until the day after Election Day 2020. Then, just hours after Joe Biden took the presidential oath of office and steps away from where President Trump began the withdrawal process, President Biden began the process to rejoin the agreement, and by February it was official. The United States was back in the pact. The goals of the deal are to limit global warming to no more than one and a half degrees Celsius, with countries agreeing to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Last week at a White House virtual summit on the climate, Biden pledged to reduce America's emissions. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. It marks a return of the United States to the global effort to address climate change that is at the heart of the agreement bearing the name of the city in which it was negotiated, the Paris Accord. Philippe Etienne has had a unique perspective on the changing climate over climate change in the White House. He has been the French ambassador to the United States for two years. We spoke with him last week. How would you describe the U.S. credibility today on addressing climate change? Well, first, uh, during the four last years, when uh, after President Trump withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Accord, we kept the, well, not only France, we, we, but we succeeded in keeping the international community together on the Paris Climate Accord, with the exception of the U.S. But even during those four years, many people in the United States said, we are still in And those people were not any actors, big cities, many, many states, a growing part of the business and financial community, many organizations of the civil society. And I would say more and more citizens in the United States, starting with uh, the newer generations, the, the younger generations, but also people affected directly and more and more obviously by climate change. For instance, coastal areas, like here in Florida. So we have first the fact that even during the four last years, many Americans continued to consider themselves and to act accordingly in the Paris Accord. And then, of course, we have the new administration, which made very clear through the immediate decision taken by President Biden to come back to the Paris Accord. The U.S. wants to be again in the leadership as it was before and in the run-up to the Paris Accord itself together with Europe. And of course, we welcome this. 
And I, I understand also that there is also internally in the U.S. an ambition by this administration to raise the the, the level of the policies, which can uh, uh, lead to a, a strong diminution of uh, the emissions. So I think we can take this seriously uh, and uh, consider that the U.S. is really back uh, uh, on the front line of the battle against climate change together with Europe. What role do local governments In the United States, states like Florida, for instance, states that have growing populations, coastal communities, as mentioned earlier, that are vulnerable to the hazards of climate change. What role do those governments play in the Paris Accord goals? A very important role, and not only in the United States, local governments, cities, big cities are actors on the ground. They they make things happen or not happen, really. Uh, and uh, their role is essential um, together with the role of national governments. Uh, so the role is big because the policies which will make the fight against climate change happen and be efficient are very often local policies. It's about public transportation, for instance. It's about uh, housing, all those issues and It's about fostering uh, renewable energies, which can be made nationally, but also at the state level. So there are plenty, plenty of dimensions to underline how the role of local governments is really very important. Speaking of energy generation, here in the Sunshine State, FPL is the name of the primary uh, electric generating company and distributor in South Florida. About 75% of its electricity is generated via natural gas, a fossil fuel. Nuclear power is the next largest source, about 12% of its portfolio, a distant number two in that chart. Solar is less than 10%. How will what France wants to accomplish with the Paris Accords potentially impact how electricity is generated? The logic of the Paris Climate Accord is that every country decides for itself. It's a path. It's what we call nationally determined contributions. And each NDC has, is different because each situ, national institution is different. And each country has its own energy mix. What is important is not only that everybody now, or as many countries as possible, join the commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050, but also take concrete steps to reach this goal and start now because uh, the coming years will be uh, maybe the most important. But the generation of electricity, of course, again, is a very different uh, landscape from one country to another. In France, nuclear, civil nuclear energy accounts for, for two-thirds of our electricity. We, we intend to lower this share to 50% over the years uh, through more and more renewables. But we consider nuclear civil energy as a, something which is uh, really important for this transition because it's, uh, it's a no-carbon uh, energy. We see in different countries uh, a different role for gas, for instance, as a, in the transition depends on on each economy but the most important thing is that we all especially the the biggest emitters the biggest economies we make concrete progress to lower our emissions not waiting for uh, when it will be too late and uh, 
starting now to accelerate, starting to accelerate this uh, practical transition. Critics of the Paris Accords here in the United States pretty consistently point to China as the largest emitter of carbon in the world. Florida Senator Rick Scott called the Paris Accord, quote, a bad deal for Americans, quote, putting American taxpayers on the hook for what he called the real polluters. As a diplomat, how do you how do you build these bridges? How do you negotiate? Because climate knows no borders, of course. No, absolutely. And we have to solve this issue of so-called carbon leakages when you fight against efficiently against climate change and others don't do it. How do you balance this for the trade to not to not to disadvantage your uh, your own economy or jobs? So we, we recognize there is an issue and we in Europe have made a proposals for this. But coming back to China, everybody, every country has to take commitments. And of course, the role of China is absolutely considerable as a you said the biggest emitter, China has taken commitments. We agree they are not enough. And we have to work with, uh, with China, not only to, in, to improve its own commitments uh, internally, but also to act in a responsible way through its international operations. You can increase your carbon emissions by increasing your own industry in a way which increases emissions or not decrease. But you can also play a very important role, especially when you are such a big country like China, through your exports of technologies. So we expect, uh, of course, from China to do more. Allow me to bring the climate conversation back to this hemisphere with the Caribbean specifically and with the French interests in the Caribbean. What more can be done to help mitigate climate change in the Caribbean, which is so vulnerable to higher sea level, to heating days, to warmer oceans, and, and of course, hurricanes, typhoons? Well, the Caribbean islands and the Pacific islands were among the ones who, in Paris, said, look at the end of the Paris conference, which led to the adoption of the Paris Accord, even two degrees, which is very, very ambitious. Two degrees Celsius increase in global temperatures. I think as increasing in the temperature compared to pre-industrial times is even to two degrees is too, too much for us because we are so fragile as islands. And so they introduced this aim, still more ambitious aim of 1.5 degrees. So those countries must be helped to mitigate, as you said, uh, the climate uh, challenge and um, we owe them to, to do more than ourselves, but also to, to adapt themselves, what we call adaptations, to, to increase their resilience. Whatever we, we, we like it or not, we, the, the, the problem is already there. More and more hurricanes, more and more storms, more and more drought. And those countries are already there, very, very much threatened. So we must help them to adapt. But uh, obviously, long, on the long run, the, we must simply uh, implement the Paris Accord. And in this respect, we, France, being a Caribbean country through our departments and our territories, we work very much with those countries, with the uh, Inter-American Development Bank. We have programs to increase the resilience. Our 
uh, French Agency for Development has programs. We try to use also money from the European Union because Guadeloupe and Martinique being European territories, being French departments are territories of the European Union. We use European funds to increase the cooperation with our neighbors. So we, we try to use all possible funding, including French uh, development assistance to help them increasing their resilience and mitigating this danger. That's France's ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne. Still to come, we talk about the French role in Haiti. We are very much uh, involved in, in every dimension of, of the action of the international community to help Haiti and the Haitian people. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and for supporting public radio. Today is a conversation with Philippe Etienne. He's the French ambassador to the United States. It is his latest diplomatic post, which have included diplomatic advisor to the French president and permanent representative of France to the European Union. Haiti may not be in his diplomatic portfolio, but France's connections to its former Caribbean colony run deep. A French nun and priest were among the 10 people kidnapped earlier this month northeast of Port-au-Prince. Kidnapping for ransom money and violence has increased in recent months. Some streamed live on the Internet. The prime minister resigned and the president is under increasing pressure to hold elections. Haiti is where we pick up our conversation with France's ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne. Should France be doing more to welcome more of the diaspora as immigrants from Haiti? Well, we have quite a, a, I think, sizable diaspora in Guyana, in French Guyana. Uh, we we have a because of the proximity, probably uh, more commu- Haitian communities in Canada and in the United States, especially in Florida. Those are marvelous people. We worked with them in in New York, for instance, uh, to open. A couple of years ago, I remember I was in charge of this program, special schools with uh, French language and uh, to help the children of Haitian migrants to adapt themselves to to integrate better in New York. So we, uh, even if we have also Haitian communities in in France, we try also to work with the diaspora here in uh, in Northern America. Of course, we we should all do more, but... uh, this protracted crisis, uh, which has been lasting so long in Haiti, is, uh, is first uh, also governance, a security crisis. And we must, as international community, support this country, which is uh, so, uh, so, also so important for all of us. Uh, you mentioned France and history, of course. We have this responsibility also as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. We, we are very much uh, involved in inter- every dimension of the of the action of the international community to help Haiti and the Asian people. Does the international community have a larger role to play, either through the UN generally or more specifically 
through Washington, the United States, or through Paris, through France? Well, I'm sure that the international organizations have much to play, but at the end, it will be the decision of the Haitian people. And to, for instance, to, to create a, a consensus all among uh, Haitian stakeholders to organize elections in a way which is acceptable to everybody with results which will be accepted by everybody. This is maybe only one example. It is a very important one. And there is a security issue. We had a kidnapping recently, still two French uh, people. French citizens, right. And uh, we know that uh, in Haiti, like in any any other place, without security, you have no development. People will not come to invest into... uh, So these gangs uh, are, which which create this uh, insecurity, are obviously a strong obstacle for... uh, for the development, any any development. How does France approach the issue of reparations regarding its former colony, Haiti? We have uh, uh, increased, increasingly uh, considered Haiti as a, in uh, America, in the Western Hemisphere, our only, the only country which is um, considered as a priority country for development assistance and we are also um, devoting much importance to the uh, in, in this framework to policies related to education and to the future of this country have those efforts been initiated ambassador because of this idea of reparations well because of the history in general because the IT is a, is a country which is uh, we feel very being very close to to our country the population in France, uh, not only Haitian diasporas, but also the French population in general, whatever the origin of the people is, feels very strongly about uh, cooperating with Haitian communities in Haiti. And it probably it's one the, the country with, uh, with whom we have a, a, the biggest number of uh, civil society organizations trying to help from small communities to small communities, churches to churches. So there is a, a huge network of solidarity between the, the French society and the, the Haitian society. Speaking with the French ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne. Now still to come, Florida, France, and national security in space. The danger of the, that outer space, like cyberspace, uh, becomes the new field of uh, military or security uh, competition. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Dragon, SpaceX, confirmed crew displays are configured for launch. Displays are configured for launch. And with that confirmation, the final countdown began for SpaceX Crew 2 Friday morning at Kennedy Space Center about an hour before sunrise. This was the third SpaceX blastoff with people on board. This time, French astronaut Thomas Pesquet is among them. As the capsule orbited Earth and made its way to the International Space Station, Pasquet gave NASA TV a short tour of the spaceship. If you get closer, you can get a view out the window, and I'll try to give you that. Pasquet became known for his photos of Earth during his first trip aboard the space station in 2017. Coming up on Madagascar, but it's cloudy. I don't think you get a good view. He took thousands of photographs from about 250 miles up in space of landscapes and cities. 
volcanoes and water, during the day and at night. This is his second mission in space, and it was the second time Philippe Etienne watched a space launch. Etienne is France's ambassador to the United States and was in Florida for the launch on Friday. He first saw a space launch in the early 1990s when he was a diplomat in Russia. The international space race was becoming more collaborative then after decades of national competition. With advances in technology and the development of the private space industry, including here in Florida, the stakes over science and national security are ever-increasing. When you think of the, the, the race between the Soviet Union and, and the United States at the end of the 50s and the 60s, which landed to the first man on the moon, it's, it's incredible what, what you can do with, uh, well, some competition, but uh, this also, this will to, it's a, it's a new frontier. And uh, it means also so much uh, when you see the challenges we face uh, on our planet. The competition, if you want to call it that now, is perhaps with commercial space travel. There's a collaboration, certainly, between government agencies and commercial partners. How are these commercial partners like SpaceX helping agencies like the European Space Agency? It's a combination of it. And uh, I think it's not like the competition we had before. There, there are, I see two levels first. There is a public-private. Many uh, private companies uh, getting into the business and pushing for innovation and um, inventing new models. But there is also more and more public stakeholders. And by the way, I think that most of the financing of the space research still is, uh, is public. We must not forget that it's not only uh, sending astronauts to the moon and maybe one day to Mars or now to, to the space station. So also a lot of satellites making incredibly important research, for instance, against the climate change. If most of the money comes from the public, we have also more and more public stakeholders, not only private, but also public. More and more countries are on, in this race. And here, I think that we hope, I hope that uh, we will stay on a mode of cooperation between all the actors, because the challenges are really common to the whole uh, international community. The dimensions of this are so important to Florida, particularly in the Space Coast, uh, Cape Canaveral, and the infrastructure and the technology and the economic impact that the space industry has had and continues to have in that area. What kind of emerging threats in space are on the horizon as you see a country like China, for instance, become more aggressive with its space program here on Earth, as well as concerns about what it has plans for in space? I visited during my first visit to Florida, um, a manufacturing uh, site of satellites. So I realized how it is your ecosystem, space ecosystem around your space center, Kennedy Space Center is quite uh, vibrant and uh, it's really a, a model. But uh, indeed, we have a number of challenges in the outer space. Will we be able to cooperate, to compete, but finally also to cooperate? because we have the same challenges and we need common answers to very earthly uh, threats, common threats, especially the threat against the planet, the climate. There are many other challenges or threats. Uh, the danger of the, that outer space, like cyberspace, uh, becomes the new uh, field of uh, military or security uh, competition, uh, which is also something we must be very 
very cautious about. So all of this must be monitored and followed carefully by our countries, especially uh, from the security point of view. That cautionary stance uh, we saw within the last few weeks, France held a simulated attack on satellites, kind of a war games type scenario. Germany, Italy were involved. The United States was involved in this. It was based at the French National Space Agency on French soil as they went through this scenario. Obviously, this uh, cyber and space, outer space, are really the, the, the two new uh, big uh, fields uh, for our security. It is not a coincidence that, uh, like the U.S., in somewhat different way, but like the U.S., France has restructured its uh, military command to to create a, a, a something clearly identified for space and uh, space command. And it's uh, obviously something uh, which is uh, increasingly important. How is the space race intersecting with the race to address climate change? It's uh, absolutely uh, essential, Tom, I think, because the best place to observe uh, those phenomena is uh, the space. And uh, you have their instruments, which are absolutely necessary to monitor the climate change, to monitor the emissions, and also to measure precisely the level of the seas, the rise of the seas or the oceans, and many other phenomena which are absolutely crucial to follow the evolution of the climate. Thomas Pesquet, who is uh, our astronaut, during his first mission in 2016-2017, he took photographs and he he published them. It's incredibly moving how you see the fragility of our planet from uh, above. Speaking with Philippe Etienne, the French ambassador to the United States. Now still to come, catching up with a baker, banker and cleaner in the pandemic economy. We used to pay $10 entry-level in the kitchen. We're paying 12 I'm always mindful is that even though we hear some of those positive things about the economy, there's still people that are hurting. This is pretty much like pre-COVID. And actually, this is better than pre-COVID. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Most weeks on the program, we check in with three businesswomen in South Florida. One runs a small janitorial service company. Another heads up a community bank. And Pilar Guzman Zavala owns and runs Half Moon Empanadas. She's been growing the company. A new store in Pembroke Pines was supposed to open two months ago. But after all the delays, she now has finally set a date to open its doors. We have concrete dates for opening Pembroke Pines. <laughs> so we're opening May 3rd, and we're going to do the opening for Pembroke Pines. And that same week, we're doing a big PR uh, lounge in Jackson Hospital. And then we're also starting with construction, finally, of the kitchen, the new kitchen. So we have a date, May 3rd, and, and I'm excited for that. It's been a two-month delay because we started up paying rent in March 1st for Pembroke Pines. Uh, we're going to open in May 3rd. The delay has been uh, what for most businesses, especially my industry, are going through. I've spoken with several businesses. I was the other day at a coffee shop that I love, 
And she was sharing the same thing. We cannot find people to work. I was the other day in the drive-thru of Starbucks and they were opening late, several hours late because they couldn't find people to cover shift. And so I think there is a huge problem right now. I support government programs. I think they're important, but I think the unemployment money is affecting the businesses that want to come back and do things, right? People want to spend the money that they're getting, but then on the other hand, it's hard because you don't have people to cover. So it's pretty much what a lot of businesses are going through, I think, the whole year. And so it's been difficult. We had to be very aggressive on the salaries and what we're doing with employees. So we finally were able to get, you know, employees to work there. We used to pay $10 entry level in the kitchen. We're paying 12 because otherwise it's, it's hard. At the same time that I tell you it's hard for us to get people, it's because my production is increasing. So I'm selling more empanadas, right? So I need more people. Um, my team has to get everything, you know, ready before that week. I am taking a trip to New York by myself. I'm leaving on Wednesday. I am finally taking five days away from everybody, from family, from business. And I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking because I feel like it's been a lot of like execution and I need space, mental space to think strategically for the business. I don't share this with you too much, but I've been literally exhausted to a point where I know I'm not thinking clear and I'm not being patient with my daughter. So that is for me the most important thing. When am I going to have some time to rest? That's the only way you can actually sustain the pressure and whatever goals you want to achieve or whatever success you want to call it, right? And so I need that oxygen so that I can continue to do and create and do more. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas. Ginger Martin runs American National Bank in Broward County. One challenge she's experiencing is a result of all the efforts to support and stimulate the economy during the pandemic. One of the things uh, that's happening, I think, with all banks is we just have so much liquidity in the system. In fact, I had the opportunity to be on a call with several other uh, CEOs around the state of Florida with the Federal Home Loan Bank. So all the banks on the call are a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank. And all of us as banks just have a lot of liquidity on our balance sheet. And it's just because there's so much money in the system uh, right now. And so as a banker, it becomes that challenge, how do we invest this? putting that money to work in loans. And of course, the good thing about putting it into loans, that means it's also benefiting the, the community and the, and the local uh, economy. There's a lot of cash in the system. And part of it is really the stimulus uh, that people have, that has been put into the banking system. You know, part of it is the fact that Fed keep, they keep buying uh, securities. And so they're, they're still putting a, a lot of liquidity in the, again, the macro system. So it's just a lot of excess cash. We still see loan demand to be strong in the commercial real estate market. The latest unemployment number, thank goodness that that's improving. But yet, I'm always mindful is that even though we hear some of those positive things about the economy, there's still people that are hurting. People have gone out of business. You know, people are hanging on uh, by a, a thread in some industries, and yet others, um, are both business-wise and personal-wise, are doing good. That's Ginger Martin with American National Bank.
Last week was as busy as Sherry Rudolph and her employees have been since the pandemic. She owns and runs Legally Clean in Lauder Hill. I did not get home before 7 o'clock p.m. every night. First thing in the morning is prayer and uh, hop out of bed and uh, and get started in terms of pulling my crew together. Um, and sometimes I have to uh, pick them up. Others have, you know, vehicles, but there are one or two that I have to sometimes pick up just so I can make sure that I uh, meet my uh, staffing needs on the job. After completing that, we head out to the job where we do a tour or walkthrough to determine what has to be done. And after that, I assigned uh, the different staff members to different parts of the uh, site and uh, they get started. And uh, I pretty much just make sure it's done right. When we have all day jobs on various work sites, um, I will spring for lunch and make sure that they have uh, uh, water and tea or a lemonade or something uh, to keep them hydrated during the day because I can't have anybody falling out on me. And I think that's the least that I can do is to uh, provide lunch, um, you know, pizza or chicken or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, they want. Um, like I said, they're doing a good job for me. They work really hard. And I think it's only fair that we um, show them how much we appreciate them. People have been calling me um, based on other real estate agents, other businesses uh, have been referring me because they are familiar with the work that we do and the quality of work we do and the integrity that I uh, have. This is pretty much like pre-COVID. Yeah. And actually, this is better than pre-COVID. <laughs> That's Sherry Rudolph with janitorial cleaning company Legally Clean, the cleaner of the cleaner, banker, and baker trio of businesswomen we hear from most weeks here on the program. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.